tonight if you would turn with me once again to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in a very challenging passage tonight. It's a hairy situation, literally. It's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Just a reminder, this was a church divided. This was a church with many problems. This was a church that was told to be in consideration of others and their practices, whether they were eating meat or whether they were doing other things. This was a church that was reminded that in Christ is found wisdom. And they were told, leading up to this text, that in everything they did, they were to glorify God. And in fact, they were to imitate the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, insofar as he imitated Christ. But we also know he was answering many questions of his day. And I have to say I feel in many ways inadequately qualified to address this text. It is very difficult. And I don't have all the answers. And frankly, I wish I had two or three more weeks to spend just on this particular text to look at it for tonight. One of the questions I think that is brought up is, what about the times when there might be feminism or gender issues in the Corinthian culture? Are those things new in today's life and today's experience? Or did they happen long ago? I think in part, Paul may be addressing those things. There are different opinions as to what the culture was like in those days. Some would say there were indeed many, even who would seek to cross the boundaries of gender in those days, And here he is addressing that in the church in Corinth. Hear these words. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For if a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm sure as you read these words, as I have over and over again this week, you understand all the things that are presented here and can present them to others. If not, let's pray together that we might understand this passage. Lord, as we consider your word, 
We thank you that the things necessary for our salvation are clear. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners from their sins. And that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Father, we thank you that you have given us words on doctrines that may not be so clear. But we thank you that you have spoken and pray that your spirit would open our ears and hearts to hear and understand your word, that we might apply it to our lives and we might submit to you. For Lord, this is a part of your word, inspired by your spirit. And Lord, is our authority over us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, this passage is very controversial. You see, we are in the midst of a revolution in our culture against the traditions and practices not only of marriage and family, but of the roles of men and women in every sphere of society. And it seems as though in the last few years it has gone at light speed, how things have changed and how these traditions and these concepts have been changed legally by definition in our dictionaries and even in the practices of places we would not suspect. There are people in our own church who can tell you that their families have been impacted in very powerful ways in this attempt to undermine the created order when it comes to gender and marriage and family and the roles of men and women. The church, of course, is at the center of this attack. Being what many would call traditionalists or right-wing extremists, they have words like this that the Apostle Paul writes that seem to indicate that there is, after all, a difference between men and women that marriage really is between one man and one woman and indeed is important in society as a building block and in the end that in the church even God has defined that there would be roles that men and women would play that are different one from the other. So with all this in mind, all this controversy, how dare we address it We address it because God addresses it in his word. Jennifer, as I mentioned to her over and over again this afternoon, I don't feel ready to preach this sermon. She said, well, why didn't you just skip it? And I have to say that would go against all of my philosophy of preaching because my understanding of scripture is that we are to teach the whole counsel of God. And in so expositing the scripture chapter by chapter and verse by verse, we may not skip. But, of course, we may plead ignorance in some areas. But here I think we have several categories that are clear, some that are not so clear. First of all is the biblical principle of headship. We'll look at that briefly in a moment. The other points in my outline are these. One, we're going to discuss things concerning the man's uncovered head. And we're going to discuss things in opposition to that about the woman's covered head. We're going to look at several doctrines and several points, and then we're going to try to tie it all together. But the first one is a foundational principle, and that is the principle of headship. Look with me at verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
Now, there is more to this than meets the eye. When we hear the word tradition, we often think of the things that we find as human beings to be something comfortable, something we've practiced for a long period of time. And there is one sense in which this is a tradition that we pass on to others. Many of you may have a Christmas tradition or a New Year's tradition or something like that. But the word tradition in the New Testament often means more than that. It means the apostolic teaching or the things that were brought to this church from the Apostle Paul as true in connection with the Old Testament and the doctrines and teachings revealed to him by the Holy Spirit through Christ. And so when he says, I commend you because you remember and maintain these traditions, he's basically talking about the doctrines and teaching of the church. And this is kind of surprising here in this part of Corinthians, because up to this point, it seems as if Paul has had a lot to condemn them for. And in fact, he will do that in the next section of scripture regarding the Lord's Supper. But in this particular aspect, evidently, as they were asking questions about the roles of men and women in the church, he was commending them and reinforcing this position. And of course, the principle that he's describing is what we now call headship. Verse 3 says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. You see, when he talks about headship, he's talking about authority to which we must submit. When someone is our head in this sense, that means they are the one who has authority over us and we submit ourselves to them lovingly and freely because in this case, the head is Christ. Notice what it says. The head of every man is Christ. That means, man, you are not God. Man, you are not the Lord of your life. In essence, when you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you have not made him Lord, you have realized that he is the Lord, and thus you have submitted to him, hopefully, in all things, but as you are being sanctified, you will more and more submit to his word and to his way, because you love him, and thus you love to follow his commands. But then he says the next thing, and this is where we start to get into the modern controversy of our culture today. It says, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, I want you to notice, perhaps, if you have an ESV Bible, which is the translation I'm using, there's a little number one and a little number two in those texts. The words here that are described can either be translated wife or woman, or in the other case, husband or man. It seems to be unclear whether Paul is speaking about marriage here or is speaking about general men and women in the church. But we know that elsewhere, Paul teaches specifically that a woman should submit to her husband. So in the sphere of the church, every man has the head of Christ, but every woman in the family and in the marriage has a head in her husband. Now, this does not mean that her husband is God. This does not mean that her husband should use his authority over her lightly or to use it in such a way to dishonor her or to put her down or to gain benefits for himself. This role is one of mutual love and respect. 
And so here, the head of the wife is her husband. The third of the foundation of headship is this. The head of Christ is God. Of course, we could turn to Philippians chapter 2 and show how Jesus submitted to the Father even unto death on the cross. And we could show how Jesus in all things submitted himself, even praying in the garden of Gethsemane with blood coming out of his pores, not my will, but yours be done. This principle of headship is one of submission. We understand that the Bible teaches that there is a head in this aspect. And for even Jesus who came as fully man as well as fully God, he submitted himself completely and fully to his head, the Father, in the triune God. And here we are called to submit to one another, but especially to Christ. This is the principle of headship. In fact, we all know this is a very important principle. After all, without somebody being in charge, there's chaos, isn't there? Imagine you're in, a, you're in a classroom with 25 young students in elementary school, and in that classroom, imagine if the children were taught that no one was in charge, that they did not have to submit to anyone, that no one was their head. It was just a free-for-all. Imagine the situation you would find yourself in. Pretty soon, people would be pulling each other's hair literally, wouldn't they? They'd be doing all kinds of things in the classroom, and, and learning would be next to impossible because everyone would want to talk at once, everyone would want to tell each other what to do, and no one would listen to anybody. But who's the head of the classroom? The teacher, of course. Somebody, after all, must be in charge. Well, the good thing that Paul reminds us in this passage is God is not a God of chaos or disorder. God is a God of order, and therefore he has made himself the head of even his son Christ in his endeavor to save the world from their sins. He has ordained that there would be a head in the household without compromise, without uh, discussion, that he has ordained it, so therefore the head of the marriage is the husband, and of course the head of every man is Jesus Christ and his word. That is one of the principles so clearly taught in this passage of scripture. But in the context here, he begins to talk about something else. We're going to talk a little bit about the man's uncovered head. He says in verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. So there we have the next two points, the man's uncovered head and the woman's covered head. Now you might notice I'm going to jump around a little bit in this text and look at several different verses comparing the two. The first is the man's covered head. The first principle is this. If a man prays with his head covered, he dishonors his head. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, a reminder here that for some reason, covering his head is something that he should not do in praying or prophesying. I don't know all the reasons why, 
I don't know why it is that we often say a man should not wear a hat into the assembly of the congregation as they worship God. But I do know this. It says that if he does this, he dishonors his head. Now, before you think that means there are a lot of heads out there that might be dishonored, I want to remind you of the context. Who is this man's head? It is Jesus. When we say that he would dishonor his head, we're not talking about his literal head, the biological thing on his body. We're talking about the respect he must have for the Savior. And so when we say that when you're praying or prophesying, you don't cover your head, we're saying that you're doing this out of respect for Christ, who is your head in this relationship. For whatever reason in the church, Paul has been made to understand that in this particular aspect, this is a way we honor our head, Jesus Christ, as men of faith. In verse 7, a little bit more is revealed. In verse 7 it says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. So this is the second point. Man is the image and the glory of God. Now we can go all day to talk about the image of of God. What does that mean? Does that mean we reflect God, that we look like him, that we act like him, that we have certain characteristics like him? Does it mean that we have a will, we can choose to do certain things, we can think and have a discussion? That debate has been for many, many times. But we do know this, man is the image, and it says here, the glory of God. Notice it does not say that only man is made in the image of God, but it does say here that there is some distinction between man and woman, that man is the image of God, and therefore he should not cover his head in these circumstances. That's the second point. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. The third point is this, man and women are not independent from each other. That is, they are complementarian. You might hear these words. It is opposed to the word egalitarian, which says basically men and women are equal in every facet and every uh, opportunity to understand the roles of men and women. But in scriptures, it is a complementarian view. That is, that men and women need each other. They are not independent of each other, and yet they are different from each other, and these differences are important in order to glorify God and that we are made in God's image. That's the third point under man's uncovered head. The fourth point is in the next verse. It says, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. The fourth is this, man is now born of woman. In other words, it's another reminder of the the intricate way in which God has put us together that both men and women are crucial in the church and in all the world. We are born of women. We can't do that without women. We need them. They are crucial. And together we seek to glorify God. And finally, under this category, verse 14 Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Somehow or another, this rhetorical question, of course, the assumed answer is, yes, it does teach us that. 
Long hair for man is a disgrace. Now what exactly that means and what context we mean it, especially when we look at the teachings of Nazarites in the Old Testament and so forth, we perhaps struggle with these things. But this is perhaps why some of us who are fuddy-duddies sometimes like to see our children get haircuts. Is this not true? But the idea here is that some way or another, the way that man either covers his head or doesn't cover his head, and the way he wears his hair, even these things make a difference in how we glorify Christ and we see him as our head. Now I have to say, Again, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how much of this is perhaps cultural, especially to Corinth, or how much may not be. I do know that there are everlasting principles contained in every portion of God's word. And therefore, these words are important, particularly to understand the complementarian view of men and women and the fact that in some way, even as we pray and prophesy, the way that we glorify Jesus is in part defined by our biological sex in how God has created us in the created order. That is something that is so different from what the world teaches us in just that statement. But now let's look at the woman's covered head. This is the question that people ask me and I don't always have the answers to. Should women wear something on their head when they come into church? Now I have to say there are many different questions or ideas that we could come up with with this. First of all, one of the questions is, is Paul describing a worship service? John MacArthur, one of the commentators that I like to read, says no. In fact, he says this particular passage is dealing with informal settings of the church where people are gathering and prayers and prophesying is taking place, such as perhaps a synagogue in which there were not enough men to uh, form a synagogue and an official worship service and women were praying together. Or perhaps a situation where there was prophecy, like when Agabus was prophesying uh, and uh, telling the apostle that if he were to go to Jerusalem, he would be bound. It was not necessarily in a worship service. John MacArthur says this, I don't know if I agree, But it's interesting that he has different reasons or qualifications for women as they pray and they prophesy. One thing to note here is that in the early church, women were participating in these practices. I don't think it was necessarily in the worship service, but it was in the assembly of the congregation. And he says here in verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Again, to take this in context, who is the woman's head? If she is married, one of her heads is her husband. So it is saying here, if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she would dishonor her husband. On the other hand, we also know that her head is also Christ, just as it is men. And so therefore, in some way, in some fashion, if she prays in such a way that her head is uncovered, then it dishonors Christ. So then back to the question, does that mean that women should wear something in a worship service? Hold that thought. Second point, 
It says every woman who does this brings shame. Verses 5 and 6, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will, never, uh, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. In essence, there is, in this sense, shame that comes for a woman who would do those things. Now again, is this cultural? Is this universal? Is this something that is clear to us what it means to cover or not cover? To not cover is evidently so strong here that he says if you're not going to cover your head, you might as well shave off all the hair. And at least in that particular situation, it was considered anathema to the people in Corinth. Verse 7 goes on. It says, woman is the glory of man. On the one hand, it said, man is the image and glory of God, but here it says, woman is the glory of man. Does that demean the woman by no means? If, after all, God has created them to be in his likeness, and Paul elsewhere has described that in Christ there is neither male nor female, in spiritual position before Christ, in the spiritual benefits gained from faith in Christ, in the spiritual benefits of all eternity, especially eternal life, men and women are no different. But in their role in the created order, God made woman second. Not second in importance, not second in gifts, not second in abilities, not second in any way inferior to men, but second in order. Therefore, verses 8 and 9 say this, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the principle there is woman was first made from man. You heard the words of Genesis 2. God took the rib from the man, sewed up the place where the rib had been, and out of that rib he formed a woman. And of course, it was very good. It also describes in scripture that woman was made for man. This is because man was lonely. It was not good that man should be alone. In essence, it's a reminder that woman was made because in one sense, God realized that man was incomplete without her. And so he made her to fill and fulfill and complement that man so that together they may glorify God. So in that essence, we understand that in the created order, of course, woman is not inferior. She is just as crucial, just as important, just as fabulous in the eyes of God as man. Verse 10 then tells us this very strange thing. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now I have to tell you that the word symbol is supplied in the English to help us understand this a little better. It actually says the wife owes a debt to have authority on her head. A woman ought to have this authority upon her head. So some way, some purpose, there ought to be some measure of authority upon her, whether that is an object, whether that is something to express, particularly this concept that her head is her husband or her head is Christ. 
Some way, some purpose, he says, there ought to be something of this on her head. And then he says this very strange phrase to our ears, because of the angels. And you might ask yourself the question that I've asked myself, what in the world do angels have to do with it? I've heard all kinds of discussion on this topic. I've heard discussion that perhaps the word here, which is also the word in Greek messengers, is described. Maybe it's those who would come in and observe what they're doing and understand that as these observers would come in, they could go tell others how there was order in the church and how they loved and respected one another according to the created order. I don't know if that's what he means. I think he really is speaking of angels And, of course, one of the great things about angels, at least the angels that serve the Lord and have not fallen in their sin, these angels are known for their submission to God. What God tells them to do, they do. And because of these angels, we must look at them as the examples that they serve, just as Christ does, as those who would submit themselves to authority. And so, therefore, In this sense, there should be a symbol or authority on the woman's head. That's letter E in your outline. Letter F is the next verse, verse not the next one, the verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Somehow, someway, these Corinthians knew in their hearts that Paul's teaching about this subject is proper. It is proper for a wife to pray with her head covered and not uncovered. Was, again, this a cultural thing? Was this an understanding that they had that we perhaps have lost today? I don't know. And finally, verse 15. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. A woman's long hair is her glory. I have to say I'm not a woman. I don't do women's hair. I don't have anything to do with that. But I do know that women agonize over their hair in ways that men do not. There are some men that do. But I know that in some ways they agonize over whether to have a longer hairstyle, a shorter hairstyle, or how it looks, whether it should look a certain color or certain curls or certain whatever it might be. And it's partly because God has made them in such a way that it is important to them. He declares it to them to be a covering and glory. In this sense, I tend to fall in the camp of this. That when it talks about a woman having her head covered, I think it talks about her hair. I don't think necessarily, unless it's for circumstances that are unforeseen or unexplainable, perhaps because of uh, medical issues or because of other problems, A woman should consider whether or not she should shave her head because this hair God has designed for her glory. I don't know that I'm going to stand on a hill and die there on that particular point of doctrine. But I think there is a sense in which God is saying men and women are different even in this manner that by God's grace he has designed women in such a way that their hair presents to them an opportunity for beauty and wonder and to behold those things is a glory for her and for her husband. It's a way to lift up the woman and not to demean her. So now what do we do with all this? Should women wear something on their head in worship? That's the question that's always asked from this passage. 
I will say, obviously, I come to the position that in my practice, I do not command that to be so as, the leader, as a leader in the church. I don't know too many women who wear head coverings. I also don't know if this particular head covering is the traditional head covering where you put something on your head or, according to the Greek and my understanding of this, is actually a veil. Whatever the circumstance, I do know this. These are the basic biblical principles in this passage, and I've outlined them for you. We are to submit to authority on all three levels. As believers to Jesus Christ. As men or women to the roles God has designed for us in scripture. And finally, to understand that Christ is our example of submission as he submitted to the Father. So therefore, when we read a passage like this, we wrestle with it. We seek to decide what is best, and we come to understand that if we don't have a clear understanding of this passage, we respect how others have been led to believe this to be the case. Number two, there is a distinction between male and female, unlike what the world is teaching us today. There is not fluidity between one and the other. God has created you, male or female. And it is not a distinction in our spiritual position in Christ. It is not a distinction in our spiritual benefits. Paul clearly says in Galatians 3.28, For in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither male nor female. And yet at the same time, he defines different roles for men and women. He defines different practices for sometimes those who are Jewish or Gentile. And he defines different opportunities for the slaves or the free in society. So he recognizes that these different concepts or these different identities do exist today. But in Christ, those identities do not negate our benefits and our faith. But there are distinctions in our roles. Third, men and women complement each other before God. Because they are different, because they do have different roles, then they work together for God's glory. It's not competing one against the other or saying one is better than the other. It's merely saying God has created both and they both are crucial in God's creation, especially in the church. And fourth, even objects of clothing and hairstyle are to glorify God. You see, God had just had Paul write these words, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You see, first, Jesus is both Christ and Lord. He is our head, and we must submit to him. Secondly, God designed women for men and men to love women, to complement each other in Christ. Finally, again, everything we do, whether we cover our head or not, whether we cut our hair or not, is to be for the glory of God. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, if any of my words have been inconsistent with yours, let them pass away. Let them be forgotten. Let them be not heard from again. If there is any way that you might correct or rebuke me from this teaching or any of us from our thoughts on this passage, Lord, do so for your word, not my sermons, not my efforts, not our thoughts, 
But, Lord, your word is designed by the power of your spirit to train us for righteousness. Help us, Lord, in these ways. Father, help us to take seriously this passage, even as we laugh about it, even as we get embarrassed by it, even as we struggle with it and wonder exactly what it means in all its practical applications. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to honor you as we believe this word and as we seek to understand it. 